We're in chapter three this morning. Unstoppable forward momentum. I believe the whole book of Acts is the description of the early church. And it's the church that is now moving out through the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter one is our keystone, our core uh, scripture that helps us understand the entire layout of the book of Acts, that you shall receive power, Acts 1.8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And so we understand that that is now the movement of the church, that the power of the Spirit comes upon us so that we might be a witness to go out into the world. And, and what happens now is the movement of this biblical community called the church begins to spread and so we've looked at pentecost in acts chapter 2 and the power of the spirit came upon them and and they all spoke up in different languages and thousands of people came to christ and and the church was born the church was literally born out of the movement of the holy spirit inspiring empowering people to be able to present jesus to various people in different languages all at one time and it was it was the supercharge and it happened and, and it started the church and they began to meet in the temple and then they began to meet house house to house and, and this this movement began the question this morning is what could possibly stop this movement i mean once you engage in your faith what could possibly stop your faith from growing what could possibly stop the forward, the unstoppable forward momentum of the church. Well, there's a lot of things. And in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4, and the early part of Acts chapter 5 describes the potential of a, of, a, of a political threat against the church, a social threat against the church, some personal threats against the church, and a moral threat against the church. And I think there's various obstacles that are often in our way of moving our faith forward. And it's true in us personally, it's also true in the church. And we're going to look at those four obstacles this morning that could potentially stop this forward momentum. And I want to suggest to you that what oftentimes an obstacle is, is a can't. I can't get through this. I, it's a roadblock. I, there's no way I'm going to get through this. I can't. And I want to turn that can't into a can I believe, but what God is doing through the power of the Spirit is he's turning our cants into cans. And so we want to look at these, and in Acts chapter 3, just briefly, just giving it a quick kind of a snapshot. I hope you've read the passages this, this weekend, this week. Uh, I want to encourage you to read ahead. I want to encourage you to read what we're going to be teaching on each week so that you come prepared. You've heard the passage already. You're familiar with it, and then we can talk about it. And we've even given it to you online, and we've read it out so that you could actually download it and read it in the car or listen to it in the car, and so that you can, you, you, can, you can listen along or read along with us throughout the week, and so you come prepared. And if you have, you know that there's several events happening. This is a narrative of the early church, and several events are happening. The very first event, they're going into the temple in Acts chapter 3, and there's a lame man. There's a man who's been crippled since his birth that cannot walk, and he begs to Peter and John to do something about it. And then a crowd forms, and Peter needs to decide what to do with this crowd. 
they, have one, they want answers to what just happened. A miracle takes place. They want answers. And then all of a sudden, the Sanhedrin, the religious organization, shows up and realizes this movement is getting some potential here. It's really starting to take off. People are joining this movement. And there's a real threat to our survival and to what we believe. And so we're going to call on them to stop this. And then, of course, at the very end, there's an internal issue related to how the believers were managing their money and their resources. And there was dishonesty in the group, and it, it, it potentially threatened their survival. And so what I find are four obstacles that could potentially thwart the ongoing movement of the early church. And I also believe these are true for us as well. The first one is a need that we cannot meet. The second is a crowd you cannot please. The third is a threat you cannot endure. And the final one is a conflict you cannot solve. See, we all have obstacles. Obstacles can sometimes stand in our way and we can't push forward. There's no way. There, there they are. If there's an article in Inc. magazine, and you would, you would expect Inc. to talk about obstacles in this way, basically, essentially, what they're do, saying, if you reach a point in your life where there's an obstacle, something that's prohibiting you to pass, there's internal and there's external, and what you need is time, discipline, and creativity, and you can blow through it. So you just need to be really disciplined, have a great plan, and then just operate from the plan. Now, there's an article in Psychology Today on obstacles as well, and as you can imagine, they handle it from a more psychological perspective that, wait a minute, no, you got to first stop. You really got to stop and get a new perspective and, and, and understand that uh, you have an obstacle that you may not be able to ever get rid of, but you need to accept it, accept it as part of who you are, and then engage the mind, emotion, and will, and then find meaning in it and push through. So there's new behavior as a result of that. And so everybody's got a view on it. Well, what does God's word say about it? Well, let's take a look at Acts chapter 3 and begin with the very first one, which is a need that you can meet. Every one of you eventually is going to have a need and you aren't going to be able to meet it. And here we go. In Acts chapter 3, John and Peter are going into the temple to pray. And there is a man, and he stands there every day begging for alms, and it says that he was born crippled. And he reached out, and he asked these two men, these disciples of Jesus, for money. And what I find interesting, let's look at it from the perspective of this man, and then let's look at it from the perspective of the disciples. And when you look at it from the perspective of this man, imagine... What he really wants is to get up and walk. But he's given up on that a long time ago. He's now 40 years of age. And all he now is, now what he's doing is he's begging for money. He just wants money. That's all he wants, to make it through the day. Just give me some money. I've given up on what I really need. And, and then the disciples. I love the way in which they respond. I mean, could you imagine? Put yourself in their position, looking at this man and saying, I, I can't meet your need. First of all, they can't meet it financially because they have already made a commitment to, to, to bring all the resources of the early believers together and, and, and pool them together. And so they didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have anything to give. 
And then Peter looks at him and says, and begins with this, look at me. Look at us. Just, just take a look at us. Let's start there. And I think what Peter is saying is, look at me. I'm no better than you. Yes, I'm standing and you're on the ground. But we're both beggars going to the temple for something that we need. We need God's mercy. We need his love. We both have the same need. And so what Peter does to meet a need, to meet a need he really feels like he can't meet, he begins by saying we are all part of the same humanity. Here we are. We are all beggars. I, I'm really no better off. And then he says these words in Acts chapter 3. He says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Well, where did Peter come up with that? How did he know to say that? Did he invent that? Or was that just simply an expression? In Hellenistic thought, we realize that that actually was an expression. Silver and gold I don't have, but this virtue you can have. You can have something far greater than money. You can have a, a virtue. You can have a, a, a part of your character developed. You can hold on to a value of your internal life that you will carry on in Greek thought for the rest of your life, into eternity, into the afterlife. You carry these virtues. And so it was an expression in Greek thought that silver and gold I have. But, but notice what Peter does. He exchanges it from a virtue to a reality through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit now, through these individuals that are now beginning this movement forward called the church, call upon the name of Jesus. And I want you to see that. He doesn't say, let's give this a try. Let's pray to Jesus and see if this thing can happen. Uh, let me just say a prayer here. He simply calls upon the name, the name, Onoma. Onoma in Semitic thought identifies not simply who Jesus is, but the power of Jesus. And they knew that when they said Onoma, the name, it represented the Messiah, Jesus, and all of his power. And what you and I have is not necessarily the ability to meet people's physical needs but to meet a spiritual need by literally calling upon the name of Jesus. And what you and I can do is to call the name of Jesus, Onoma. And when you speak Onoma, you are speaking the name, the name. And the name is Jesus. And the name, Jesus, has power. It's the name that produces, that has the power that results in the miracle. And you and I have that ability as we enter into relationship with others to call upon the name of Jesus. I couldn't even imagine the scene in Las Vegas. I could not even imagine what it would, have, what it would be like to be there and be frightened to death and be, to be running around and some throwing themselves on others and others running for cover and, and some trying to triage and and help those that were wounded. And it was just mass chaos. And, and I can imagine so many people feeling so helpless. And I think that's the way we feel oftentimes. The church today 
has an obstacle, and that is, will we be able to break through this? And the first question a lot of people ask me about Vegas is, where was God? Why, why didn't God stop this? It's the first question I got as the morning broke. And, 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 and it, it, you can't just give it an answer. You really have to sit with that a while with somebody because that's a tough one. That's a real tough one. And yet what I realize is it could be a, a potential obstacle. We can't meet a need here. We can't change things. As Matt said, people don't want prayer. They want answers. And what we can do to press forward, to press through that, is to call upon the name of Jesus in the lives of people. And you just call Onoma. The name of Jesus has power in this situation to bring healing to trauma and hardship. It really does in their situation. I was in a situation and, and there was a family conflict and, 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 um, and I saw it and I had the opportunity to step in and it was a moment in time. And I, and I, could, I, I remember this moment where I could have addressed this conflict wanting so desperately to see this family come back together and reunite. And yet this conflict existed right there in the middle of that family. And it, now that I think about this passage, what I could have done is walked into that, walked up to the person that was creating the conflict and just spoken the name of Jesus. Jesus. I can't do anything more, but it's Jesus has the power to overcome the bitterness and the anger and the conflict that you're feeling right now in your family. It has that power. Will we step forward? I find another thing in this passage because now that this has happened, this man stands up and he's leaping. I love that. He leaps up and he jumps up and now he enters the, the temple because he can go to the temple for prayer. He's no longer unclean. And so he's clinging to Peter and John in chapter 3, verse 11. And it says... The crowd was around them, and it surged on them. Could you imagine a surging crowd? Like, we need some answers about what just happened. And here's the second obstacle. A crowd you cannot please. You cannot please crowds, ever. It just doesn't exist. You cannot be a crowd pleaser. You have to speak the truth. You have to stand by your convictions. You, there's no way that they could have won. I mean, what would they have, what could you say that would just win the crowd? They already knew what crowds did. I mean, in one moment, they cried out, Hosanna. In the next moment, they cried out, crucify him. Crowds are fickle. People are fickle. They are. They just, we are by nature. We move and we, we, we surge and we, we come here and there and, and we're against and we're for and, and we're all over the place and we like and we dislike and and it's difficult. So what does Peter and John do? I love what they do. They were full of amazement. And they say, if by our own power or piety, he, we had made him walk. Did we really? Was it by our power? Was it by our piety? Was it the way in which we conducted our lives? No, it's not. Launches into a sermon about how they have disowned the holy, the righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted and put the murderer out and, and Jesus, the one who's the prince of life, to death, whom God raised from the death, 
from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses, and on the basis of faith in his name, that one you put to death, but he rose again, on the name of that one, it is the name of Jesus, verse 16, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect health in the presence of you all. It's the name of Jesus. It's really his name that made him well. That's who you should look to. And so, and then he calls them to personal, personal commitment to Christ. It's a personal confrontation. It's a personal decision that you need to make. You need to have a personal encounter with Christ. And so he says, therefore, repent, verse 19, return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. See, there's a repentance in each of our hearts. There's a, we need to repent of something that we have been holding on that has kept us in opposition of God. We've rejected God and his plan. And when you repent, guess what happens? Times of refreshing come. And the idea of refreshing is this glass of cold water that you get and you drink it and you're thirsty and you're drinking it and you're satisfied. And that's the idea of this time of refreshment. Every person is thirsting for something. The problem is they're drinking something other than Jesus. They're finding something else to fulfill them, and it's not fulfilling them. We know that. We know it's in the scriptures, and we have it. Will we hold on to it, or will we give it? It's what we have to give. And we have to overcome this desire of taking ownership or pride or saying, that happened because of me. I want desperately people to like me. I want people to think that I did this. We have to overcome that in order to get out of the way so Jesus' name can bring the power and bring about a personal confrontation, a personal encounter with Christ for every person. You see that in the text? So the first is a need that you can't meet. And the second is a crowd you cannot please. The third here is a threat you cannot endure. There are threats in your life. You cannot endure them. I know you can't. And notice what happens. The Sanhedrin rise up. There's this powerful movement. They've heard the gospel. They now know of Christ. There's amazement. There's a lot of emotion going on in this passage. Amazement. Wonder. Now there's disturb, they're disturbed, greatly disturbed in chapter 4. And the Sanhedrin of the religious community trying to hold on to the traditions of their faith and their belief. And this new Jesus movement with the Holy Spirit and talking about a Jesus that had died and was resurrected has become the Messiah. We are in the Messianic age when Jesus rose from the dead. When Pentecost came, we are now in a Messianic age. This is the Messiah. And they didn't want that. They weren't ready for that. It didn't fit into their religion. It didn't fit into their theology. They threatened them, threw them into jail. Well, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you what. Jail is a big deterrent. There's no way. I'm not going any further. There's a threat. There's no way I can endure this. I don't want to go to jail. Chuck Colson, in his book, Loving God, talks about the evidence of the resurrection. And he says, the reason why I know the resurrection happened is because of the witnesses. There were real witnesses. 
and they stood up to the threats. And people won't stand up to a threat if what they believe isn't true. He goes, let me give you a case in point, Watergate. There was a major cover-up during the Nixon era, and uh, what was going on is that many of them were quiet. Nobody wanted to talk. Nobody wanted to rat anybody else out. And everybody was quiet, and everything was fine. They were going to push through this, and then all of a sudden, prison sentences were being threatened upon many of the cabinet members, the president's staff. And all of a sudden, everybody starts speaking. Everybody starts confessing. Nobody wants to go to jail. So all of a sudden, we realize they really, something really did happen. They came out and told the truth. And what I see here is that when we're confronted with a threat, what's really going to come out is what's authentic, what's true, what you really believe. And so what we find in this passage, they take them out of prison, they tell them uh, that they are no longer to speak of Jesus. And Peter is now filled with the Spirit. I mean, in a moment like this, when you're filled with the Spirit in the middle of a threat, somebody's threatening to do something to you if you continue on doing what you're doing. But when you're filled with the Spirit, Peter speaks up and says, rulers and elders and people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick, sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, there it is again, Unoma, the name of Jesus, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone, the cornerstone. There is salvation, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven and earth that has been given among men by which men are saved. Let's take religion out of it. You can be any religion you want. You can come from any culture you want. You can come from any world, part of the world you want. And you can adhere to any tradition, values, and religion. But there's only salvation in one name. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is only salvation in one name. It is the name of Jesus. It is his name. And therefore, we must speak of that. We have to speak of that. They observe their confidence. and These are uneducated men. They must have been with Jesus. They warned him. They told him to go away, to stop speaking. And it says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. You make the decision. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Verse 20. We can't stop speaking. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and began praising God. And it just, they, they gathered together and, and there were threats against them. And it says that they prayed and, and, and together it was, they were shaken, it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Watchman Nee. He's a Chinese Christian, lived during the 
during the early part of 1900s, 1920, died in 1971. But in about 1920, 1930, in China, there were probably maybe a million Christians. And Watchman Nee was in front of a group of leaders, church leaders and pastors, and he was threatened with prison several times and was told not to speak the name of Jesus. And so he realized he wouldn't be able to continue his ministry, and he was holding a glass of water. I don't know whether this is tradition or whether it's fancy or whether this is accurately true or not. I've heard it from a couple different sources. But what I understand, he smashed the glass on the ground in front of these people. And the communists are around watching and observing, and then he begins to stomp on it and smash the glass into, into a thousand pieces. And then he got down and he began to try to reassemble the glass, put the glass back together. He couldn't, so he gathered them up and then he threw them up in the air and the little pieces of glass came down like rain and landed on the platform. And the believers knew exactly what he was talking about. The communists were bewildered. Without saying a word, he communicated, you can crush us, you can smash us, it's just going to make us stronger. You will crush us into a thousand pieces and we will become these little pieces and we will spread out. And today, some believe that 65 to 85 million Chinese are Christians as a result of the persecution that they endured. It's tough for us to get our heads around that in America, let me just tell you that. It's really hard for us to understand first century persecution, let alone the hundreds of thousands of believers that are persecuted every day in the Philippines and in other parts, North Vietnam, excuse me, uh, North Korea in, in, in camps, and, and the Philippines and China in other parts of the world. Open Doors is a ministry that tracks the persecuted church. I was with uh, the, the chief strategist on Friday night. He came to my home for dinner, Dr. Ron Boyd McMillan. He's a speaker, he's a writer, communicator. And as a young writer for Time Magazine in his 20s, he was sent to the Philippines to write an article. And he was kidnapped by a communist group. And he watched one man get shot in the stomach. And he, was, he didn't die. It took him a whole day. And he just crawled around until he finally died. Moaned. Nobody could help him. No, and he, Ron knew in this moment, I'm going to die. He's a 20-year-old working for time in the Philippines. He thought his life was over. This, this man died, and, and he remembers just seeing the trail of blood in the circle that this man was just pulling himself in, and finally he died. And for some reason, three days later, he was released. That event in his life caused him to look straight into the face of the gospel in Jesus and say nothing is going to stop the power of Jesus. And now, over 26 years, he has walked into persecuted parts of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ through open doors. Not only bringing the message of hope and telling us and bringing word back, but also bringing encouragement in places like Pakistan and other places where he goes in to train Christian leaders. Unafraid. I, I don't know how you get there. I'm just telling you what the text says. It's just, 
sometimes just literally blows my mind. The final thing that I want to end with this morning is not only a need that you can't meet, that you really can meet. It's not simply a crowd you can't please. Oh, you can please the crowd. You just bring Jesus. And the third is a threat you can't endure. Yeah, you you can endure it when you're filled with the Spirit. When you come to that place where you realize, my life is in Christ. And I cannot but stop speaking. And the final thing that I see in this passage is a conflict you cannot solve. And, it, and, and, and notice the movement of the text again. Notice that it starts with this man in the temple, the outside of the community. He's now come in, and miracles happen. The crowd's around. They now hear the gospel. The Sanhedrin have spoken against this movement, and they can't stop it. They realize, we cannot stop these people. They are going to continue on. They're just going to march right in and they're going to just continue to take over. And then something happens within the community that could have pers- that could have destroyed it. It could have completely ended the community. And we find it in Acts chapter 5. And in the first 16 verses, it's Ananias and Sapphira. You can read about it. They actually sold a piece of property, and and many had already been doing that in Acts chapter 4. We're reminded that they were selling property, and they were bringing the money from the property and laying it at the apostles' feet and showing it's now under the control and authority of of the church to meet the needs that are in our community and in the world and the community around us. And so there's there's this, this radical change, shift in understanding from an individualistic standpoint, what you have is yours, to now what you have is part of a community to steward. That's a radical change. That's a, that's a whole other level of conversion for people. I, I understand that. And, and Ananias and Sapphira, they're young believers, and they decide, let's sell the property, let's tell them this is all the money, but we're going to hold some of it back. They do that. Peter recognizes that they're lying through the power of the Spirit. He's informed somehow and and says, you didn't just lie against us, you lied against God. And for whatever reason, he falls dead. His wife comes in, same thing happens. She falls dead. And we look at this passage going, okay, this is a complicated passage. You mean to tell me if you lie, you're going to die? No, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive of an early church event that was pivotal, that changed the mindset of these people. Something that needed to happen in order to change their way of thinking, in order to push them into faithful living in the community. And what the message is, is dishonesty will destroy community. Deceit, as one theologian says, it's this idea of deceit is spiritually disastrous. It breaks up relationships. So it's not a matter of, well, I can't give all that. Well, be honest, okay? You can't give all that. Start where you can. Be honest with us. Be honest with your fellow brothers and sisters. Be honest before the Lord. Just be real. Be honest. Be authentic. Don't try to be pious. Don't try to lie. Don't try to be something you're not. That's what he's saying. That's what he's really saying in this passage. And, this, and it says that the great fear came over the whole church and over all that heard this and 
it says that they were all together, but no, no one else wanted to associate with them. I, I get the picture. Could you, would you want to associate with a community like that? I mean, I don't think I'm ready for that. And, and, and so it was this powerful movement that was able to overcome each of these obstacles. And there will be a time in your life where there's a need in somebody's life and you can't meet it, but you just call Onoma, the name of Jesus over it. There will be a crowd, and you, you'll be tempted to want to please that crowd. You, you'll be, you'll, you want to figure it out and, and take the credit. Don't do it. And, and then you'll also realize there's a threat against you or a threat against your life or a threat against your belief system, and you're going to stand up to that. And then finally... There's an honesty. There's coming to terms with an honesty about really where you are and what you have to give and how far along you are in your faith. And I, I don't want to go there. I want to be truthful. I want to be honest. So, Father, thank you in the name of Jesus that you, uh, you overcome these obstacles for us. You're the one that overcomes them. It's not us. It's not our work. It is your name that is powerful. The Holy One, the Righteous One, the Eternal One, our Messiah Jesus, you overcome. You help us overcome. And we stand now poised, ready to push forward as a church. But there are obstacles, and we recognize that. And for some of us, we're holding on to things, and we'll never, ever see the other side until we release whatever we're holding on to. And I think it's a great challenge of the American church today. And I pray against that in the name of Jesus. An individualistic, self-focused, idolatrous relationship with what we have that is hurting us and harming the mission of the church. And if we are ever to be a church for the world, we must come to terms with, oh, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would be people that just open our hearts and desire, desire to release whatever it is to see you at work in a powerful, mighty way as the early church did. In the name of Jesus, amen.